Hey everybody, welcome to Renar Voice. Uh, Renar Voice being the Rho Eta New Alpha Rho chapter of Chi Sigma Iota at Liberty University. Um, and I'm joined today by our chapter's president and our normal co-host, Robert Sutala. Robert, good morning. Good morning, Jeff. How you doing? Yeah, good. How about yourself? Pretty good. Pretty good. This is a little different than, than the usual format. I like it. This is a little different, and you know, I we normally have our banter in the beginning, uh, which is great for our families because they find that entertaining. But today we're doing something a little bit different, if that's okay with you. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited. Okay, uh, different great. is good. Yeah, <laughs> especially into the new year, you know. Um, so today we're starting something new on the podcast. Uh, we normally interview professors uh, at Liberty University in our counseling department. But today we're starting a special feature track with experts and leaders outside of our community. Um, and today we have our first guest, Robert. Would you mind introducing him, please? Absolutely, be my pleasure. Today we have Dr. James T. Hansen. Dr. Hansen is a professor at Oakland University in the Department of Counseling. His primary scholarly, in scholar scholarly interests are philosophical and theoretical issues in counseling and critical examination of contemporary mental health culture. Dr. Hansen has published multiple books and over 50 articles in leading counseling journals. Several of his books have won awards for their contributions to humanistic philosophy and counseling. His recent book, Meaning Systems and Mental Health Culture, Critical Perspectives on Counseling and Psychotherapy, is a philosophical, empirical, and historical argument for practitioners to return to talk, talk therapy that is based on personal meanings and the therapeutic relationship rather than focusing on symptoms and diagnostics. Dr. Hansen has over 25 years of experience as a practitioner, supervisor, and consultant. Well, Dr. Hansen, we are so uh, grateful to have you here. Good morning. Good morning. I'm, I'm so pleased to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Now, Dr. Hansen, I've came across you uh, Firstly, through listening to the Thoughtful Counselor podcast, where you did a two-part episode with Mike Shook, um, and from there, I, I picked up your your most recent book, uh, the the Meaning Systems and Mental Health Culture, which, if our listeners could see, I have in my hand right now. Uh, and I've also read your article from um, January's upcoming issue of Counseling Today, where you are publishing an article and where you're calling us to the challenges of reconciling effective relational counseling with an increased professional participation in the medical model, which a lot of folks recognize as well. And, you know, as a student at Liberty, you and I have kept uh, some open correspondence, which I'm really grateful for, just as I'm trying to navigate, you know, ideas that you've shared uh, within the profession about the DSM. And, I'm thrilled that you're here to discuss with us these ideas on what you've called uh, previously the dark side of the DSM, which I particularly enjoy as a Star Wars fan, but it could also be relevant for Pink Floyd listeners, you know, as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think one point of departure for our listeners who are mostly students is what I find to be a source of relief uh, in hearing that there are plenty of reasons why the DSM may not be the product of objective science, as we are led to believe, and may actually be rather contrary to the identity of counselors and how we help people and, and how our profession originated. So can, can you just get right into it with us, the nuts and bolts and the history uh, of your position regarding the DSM and in, in relation to how counselors help people? Sure, sure. My general thesis is that the DSM is irrelevant and even harmful for counselors 
except to get paid. Uh, so that's it in a nutshell. And when I use the word counselors, I mean talk therapists generally. So I'm just going to use counselors or talk therapists synonymously. I think the DSM does have some utility for psychiatrists, but not for talk therapists like counselor. So to walk you through the basic logic of my argument, uh, let me go over a few points. The first of which is that the quality of the therapeutic relationship is the within treatment factor that has the highest association with outcomes. So we have over 40 years of research uh, to tell us consistently that counseling outcomes are most dependent on the quality of the therapeutic relationship. Uh, specific prescribed treatments for particular conditions, like what we call the medical model, is absolutely not what helps mostly in counseling. It's not the CBT reframe or the psychoanalytic interpretation that accounts for a very small percentage of the variance. Rather, it's the common factors or the relationships that uh, therapists establish with their clients, regardless of their theoretical orientation, that has the effect, okay? So this is my first point. It's the relationship that matters. This is, in my mind, um, indisputable given the research, okay? So second point, the DSM since 1980, and I could tell you about this history if you're interested coming up, has consisted of lists of symptoms, nothing else, okay? Uh, and every DSM since 1980 has been just lists of symptoms. And the DSM has taken over mental health culture, the way everyone thinks about clients. So this has caused mental health professionals to think of clients as kind of bags of symptoms and getting better as targeting symptoms and lessening them, okay? So again, the first point is the relationship that matters. Second point is the symptom-based culture the DSM has created, okay? So the, the third thing is then that if reducing people to clusters of symptoms helps build relationships, then the DSM would be good for counseling, right? Because it would be a force that helped us build better relationships. On the other hand, if the DSM and reducing people to symptoms um, did not help relationships or was bad for them, then it would be bad for counseling, okay? That's my basic reasoning. So is reducing people to symptoms good or bad for relationships? Uh, this to me, this question has an obvious answer, right? I mean, we don't need to appeal to theory or uh, research to get this answer, it's obvious. So say, for example, you come home from work upset and eager to talk to your partner about what's troubling you. And in an animated way, you begin the discussion. Your partner says, I think you have an adjustment disorder or an anger problem, and here's a new technique to use to help you. Now, would that be a relationship building intervention? I, 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 no way. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly wouldn't work in my marriage. I try yeah, it and it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, right. Mine either. Mine either. Okay. Um, so reducing people to symptoms does not seem to be a good strategy for developing relationships. It seems like probably the worst strategy you could imagine. Now, another way of demonstrating this is an experiment I've conducted with really hundreds of people, mostly counselors over my career. And let me just propose it here. So 
I want everyone who's listening to remember a time when they were troubled and they went to someone to talk to and left the discussion feeling better, right? And that's someone they talk to, it doesn't have to be a counselor, it could be just a spouse or a friend or stranger or whoever, okay? So think about a time like that. And then remember, what did that person do? What did they do? And I've asked this question hundreds of times, and the answer is always, they really listened to me. They tried to get it from my perspective. They tried to understand me, right? No one has ever answered, they diagnosed my problem and gave me some techniques. So it's stunningly obvious to me that reducing people to symptoms is harmful to the therapeutic relationship. And since that's the curative element in counseling, that's exactly how we help. Therefore, the DSM is harmful to counseling because it's damaging to the counseling relationship. Now, psychiatry is a little different. I, you know, I'm anti the medical model for talk therapy professions like counseling. By the medical model, I don't mean medications. I mean, pairing diagnostics with symptoms, right? So CBT for depression, you know, or, or you know, antibiotic for an infection. That works in medicine, great, but it's a lousy model for counseling. And medicine, including psychiatry, it, it, it does work to some extent. So psychiatry has medications for particular symptom clusters that are helpful. So I'm definitely not anti-medicine. Um, however, counseling doesn't help with that specificity treatment. It helps with the common relational factors. But even though it's marginally, the DSM is marginally helpful for psychiatry, uh, it still has you know, horrible measurement properties, what we call psychometrics. The inter-rater reliability is just awful. You know, independent raters don't agree on diagnostics. Um, that's why you know, regularly in mental health, you'll see people with, whose histories have long lists of diagnostics because no one can agree. And that's, that's a horrible uh, problem for measurement. And th there's absolutely no validity with the DSM. There are no biomarkers. There's no chemical imbalances that have ever been discovered. People are sometimes surprised to hear this, but there's none, right? Now, there may be in the future. I'm confident that we will have some biomarkers in the future, right? For conditions like schizophrenia, that to me are obviously have a strong biological component. But right now we're just grouping symptoms together or the DSM is based on our best guesses of what goes together. Um, and you know, th that's not the fault of psychiatry. It, it's, it's just, that's where we're at in the evolution of this process. But is it a good system of thought to adopt for counselors? No, it's terrible. We, we heal with the relationship. This, the DSM is reduction of people to symptoms undermines relationships. So that, that's my general opinion of the DSM and counseling. It's good for one thing and that's to get us paid. Yeah, Dr. Hanson, that, that actually was gonna be my follow-up. So, you know, if, if, if it has all these issues, why, why is a counseling profession 
number one, why do we use it? Number two, why are we required to take two classes on, on diagnostic? And, you know, and I think the answer to it is because it's, it's a mechanism to get paid. Is, is that the reason or is, is there other factors that go into the, um, the importance of this within the, the profession? It's my position that that is the reason. People disagree with me, but let me, in answer to your question, outline how I think about this. Um, so you mentioned that DSM classes are present in the curriculum of counselors, and this is something that I object to. And let me elaborate on this point a little bit. Uh, it is a good idea for people who operate in mental health to be familiar with the DSM. You, it is required to get paid in most jobs in mental health, not all, but most. And it's so dominant in mental health culture. So it's a good idea to know something about it, right? Uh, even if it's irrelevant and damaging to our way of helping people. My concern about classes in the DSM in counseling curriculum is that when, when classes are built into a curriculum, it implicitly conveys the strong message to students that the DSM is highly important to help people, right? Students take tests on the DSM, they read about it, and it's a natural conclusion for students then to think it's highly important to help people. I think it's not in terms of talk therapy. Uh, it's just highly important to get paid. Um, also, in, in my experience, uh, and I'm sure this isn't universally true, but in my experience it is, that DSM courses present the DSM in uncritical ways. It, so they're sort of how-to courses. Here's the DSM and how to use it. it, it it's sort of like a trade school where you're taught a craft or a, a trade. Uh, it's not something that's generally, in my experience, taught, uh, students are taught to think critically about, right? So rather than independent courses, which I think are problematic, I'd prefer if the DSM were just presented in seminars as something you need to get paid, or as maybe a component of classes. But again, the risk of presenting it in, in independent classes is that student thinks, students come to think that it's critically important to helping people, and it's actually harmful to helping people. Now, in, in terms of why have counselors pursued it, they pursued it for money. Uh, you know, the, the counselors rightfully want to get paid. And getting paid means you have the privilege to use the DSM, and also for power and status. But just for a moment, imagine an alternate universe where the DSM wasn't prominent and connected with the reimbursement. Uh, counselors wouldn't even use it or care about it, right? It's easy to imagine. Uh, they wouldn't care at all about it. The only reason they care about it is because it's important to get paid. Um, and there's, there's settings even these days that don't use it. I'm, I'm thinking of domestic violence shelters, I know, for example, that don't use the DSM at all, that provide counselings for victims. And uh, to say that they're less helpful or not helpful because they don't use the DSM is just wrong. Um, so that's my general um, comments about why the DSM is so prominent 
uh, and counseling in the talk therapy professions. You know, Dr. Hanson, that's so helpful. And, and you and I have chatted before that, you know, at Liberty, we're, we're KCAP accredited. And, and those first couple of classes are all focused on forming you into the, the student, forming the student into the identity of a counselor and what that is, the history of counseling, what that looks like, how we are different from the other helping professions. And so much of it is, is focused on the relational piece. Uh, and there's discussion about the medical model versus the wellness model. But then as we get through the courses and we get to the end of our program where we have classes that focus specifically on the DSM, I mean, I, I feel like we've lost focus on the identity piece. And now we're learning about psychiatry and medications and diagnostics and everything else, not to become psychiatrists. And I understand the importance, like you said so well, of, of understanding these concepts so that we can speak about them and, 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 and have a relevant place at the wider mental health uh, helping profession table, but I, I just feel like we get to the end of our program and we're writing, you know, case conceptualizations and treatment plans using the treatment planner that we have to buy. And none of the treatment planners talk about just the value of the relationship with the client. So w where do we go with this? And w what's the history of all of this? Yeah, great question. Um, and this is something I've been concerned about for a very long time. What happens is in, you know, your morning class, you learn about Carl Rogers who talked about the importance of the relationship, said diagnostics weren't really important. You have to tailor treatment to the client. Uh, you learn about relational helping, about how to understand what's on another person's mind, about empathy. And then you go to your afternoon class and suddenly it all becomes irrelevant, right? Uh, where you learn about symptoms and diagnoses and treatment plans to eradicate particular symptoms, just the opposite. And there's nothing in counseling curriculums that I've detected that helps students reconcile this conflict, right? Uh, the reconciliation for me is that the relational stuff is the real stuff and the, the DSM stuff is the stuff to get you paid. Um, don't take it too seriously, except to get paid. That's the reconciliation to me. But um, in my experience, that's not the way it's taught. And people, uh, students are left with this kind of rift in their foundational identity between relational helping, which is you know, taught uh, in parts of the program and symptom reduction helping, which is taught in another and they're opposite. So th this is problematic for me. It sounds like we need a, a course on just helping us become better human beings. <laughs> that yeah. seems to be the vehicle by which we help other people. Just well, well, think about it. I mean, just with regard to what you what you're saying, um, Jeff. Um, people helped each other through by talking to each other throughout human history, since they could talk. Right, one person went to another said, "I have a problem." Um, and would you help me? And at times this has been semi-professionalized with, um, you, you know, the religious community, for example, and ministers and, uh, or other times it's just completely informal. Uh, the 20th century brought us an interesting sort of twist on that where we formalize and professionalize that process and compete for who's going to take away the most money doing it. 
and then you end up with this, the DSM and trying to be like quasi-medical providers and psychiatrists and doing the opposite of what we should be doing to help people, right? So yes, that, that's definitely something I'm sensitive to. So Dr. Hanson, you know, first of all, how did we get here? Uh, you know, what's some of the history that we got to this point? And secondly, I'm, I'm curious of how you got to this point, because as we just talked about, you know, a lot of, a lot of our, um, our identity is, is in the, the, the wounded helper that, you know, being able to, to show empathy and then, and yeah. then we got thrown into this diagnostic. Where, was there a turning point where you saw this and said, hey, something's wrong? And does that parallel along with the history that you've been involved with at the DSM? If you could share a little bit about those, both the history itself of the DSM, as well as your own history on coming to this conclusion. Yeah, sure, sure. And maybe it'd be best to start with my own history, and then I'll be happy to talk about the history of the DSM. In terms of my own history, um, my training goes back to the 80s and, and early 90s my doctorate degree, and I was trained in psychoanalytic thought. So I, I was, my graduate school might as well have been a psychoanalytic institute. It was so uh, thoroughly immersed in that kind of thinking in graduate school. And then I got out in the early 90s and eventually became a professor at Oakland University where I've been up for 25 years. And they hadn't really heard anything about psychoanalytic thought. They didn't care about it and they were what I would describe as humanists, right? Um, so at first I struggled to reconcile humanism and psychoanalysis. Um, and what I appreciated or came to appreciate about both is both systems of thought, even though they're very different, cared deeply about what's inside a person's head. They cared deeply about human experience. So they have different ways of, of, of thinking about it, conceptualizing human experience, but a, a strong commonality about psychoanalysis and humanism is um, what's inside the client's mind is what's important. And getting to know that is key. Okay. So as I was, became a professor in the nineties and continued practicing and which I still do today, I, I just remember noticing that people care less and less about what's on their clients' minds. And they care more and more about the client's symptoms. So I went to, you know, when, when I went to case conferences in the 80s and 90s, there was talk about the client's inner life, what they cared about, their conflicts, their early development and what it meant to them and how it came back to haunt them. Right? So there's all these inner life commentaries. But as we got into the 2000s and on, those inner life commentaries got replaced by symptom talk. The client has, you know, they haven't slept well, they haven't eaten much, they're sad, right? And what can we do to eliminate them? And I remember feeling that this was a real loss to me because I had gotten into the profession because. I wanted to get to know people very deeply. And I wondered, is this just a loss to me or is this a loss more generally to the profession, right? And as I looked into it, I came to the conclusion that it was a severe loss to the profession. 
for the reasons I've described already, that you know, the best way to form a relationship with someone is to care about how they think and feel. And if we don't uh, anymore, we just care about their symptoms, that really is going to cause a lot of damage to our mechanism of healing. Okay, so I came to that conclusion, but then I really started looking into the history of how did this happen? And is that something you would like me to talk about in terms of the DSM? Oh, yes, please. Yes, please. Yes. Yeah. 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 I'm happy to do that. Um, okay. Well, how did it happen that the culture of mental health became so symptom focused is an interesting question. And it's because of the DSM, right, is the short answer. But how did the DSM become so symptom focused? And that's the longer answer. So let me tell you about that. Um, the Where we have to start actually is the late 1800s. I, I, I will keep this not that long. That intro sounds like I'm, I'm gonna talk for three hours, I won't, okay? But in the late 1800s, there was a psychiatrist named Emil Kraepelin and Kraepelin basically held the position that we should just summarize psychiatric patients based on their symptoms. He was an asylum psychiatrist and he said, you know, we really don't know what causes psychiatric symptoms. We don't know how to help people. What we should do at this point is just see which symptoms tend to cluster together, okay? There's a longer story there, but I'll, that's a good, good enough summary. We call this movement descriptive psychiatry. And descriptive psychiatry, it had some influence in the early 20th century, but died essentially uh, because psychoanalysis took over, Freudian ideas, and it eclipsed descriptive psychiatry. Okay, so bookmark that idea about Emil Kraepelin's descriptive psychiatry. Okay, now let's jump up to the 1970s. And in the 1970s, the psychiatric profession was in a period of crisis. And there were several reasons why it was in a period of crisis. And that there was an active anti-psychiatry movement led by people like Thomas Saz. Um, the homosexuality vote, when homosexuality was depathologized in the 1973 version of the DSM, uh, created a crisis for psychiatry uh, because people concluded, well, wait a second, you guys diagnosed by vote, right? What's that all about? Because formerly people have thought of psychiatry as a medical profession, but you know, doctors don't you know, decide whether diabetes is a disease by vote. It, it simply is, right? So that vote caused a lot of trouble for the psychiatric profession, a lot of bad press. And, and also the, the Rosenham study was another reason. Uh, without getting into the details of the study, Rosenham and his graduate students faked being mentally ill, got admitted to psychiatric hospitals and then acted totally normally. None of them were ever spotted as actually being normal, right? And that wouldn't happen, you know, in medicine. If I faked having a heart attack going to the hospital, I'd immediately be spotted after a few tests as a faker and they kicked me out. It didn't happen with psychiatry. So that made it really problematic for psychiatry. 
So this was tons of bad press all at once for psychiatry. And they couldn't really resolve it for a variety of reasons. Probably the primary one is that psychiatrists were split as a profession between old time psychoanalysts and newer, younger biological psychiatrists uh, who couldn't agree on anything, much less how to get out of this jam, right? So eventually they concluded that the way out of this jam was to try to remind everyone that they were a medical profession. The way to do that was to elevate the DSM, a document that was already in existence, but no one, including psychiatrists, took it seriously. They thought if they elevated the DSM, uh, then they would be remembered as a medical profession, and that would get them out of these problems they were having, all this bad press. So they told Spitzer, Robert Spitzer, a psychiatrist, to go make the new DSM, right? Um, so Spitzer thought about, well, uh, what ideology should undergird this new DSM? What should it be based on? It shouldn't be based on psychoanalysis like the old DSMs uh, because that didn't work and that would alienate half of psychiatrists. So what he decided for a variety of reasons is to revive Kraepelin's descriptive psychiatry. Just symptoms. Let's just have menus of symptoms. So Spitzer basically got a group of psychiatrists together at his apartment and they just voted on which symptoms seemed to go together. And they negotiated these votes and debated. They took them to the larger psychiatric profession and eventually the DSM-3, the new descriptive psychiatric DSM got approved and it was released in 1980. Um, and it took off like a rocket for a variety of reasons. I mean, one was biological psychiatry was coming into its own at that time. And the descriptive diagnostics uniquely supported biological psychiatry, right? So pharmaceutical companies poured millions and billions of dollars into this model, right? Another reason is insurance companies loved it. They had no way of denying payment before the DSM-3 because the, the previous DSMs were so vague about what the diagnostic criteria were, the insurance companies couldn't develop an argument to deny payment. But with a new DSM, they could. If the symptoms are better, we we're not paying, right? For therapy or for psychiatry, okay. So the DSM-3 took off. Every other DSM since then has been based on this descriptive psychiatric model, including the current DSM-5. So that since 1980, this has changed. And talk therapists could have responded, you know, two ways to the emergence of the DSM, right? One way they could have responded is, you know what, we, we help relationally, this isn't for us. Uh, this really undermines our relational work. They didn't do that. They responded the second way, which was, we will fight to be a part of this. This is where the money and the power is, and we will fight to be a part of this. And we've been doing that ever since. So that's sort of the history, the brief history. There's a lot of other history in, in there um, about the DSM. And it's helpful to remember in this history that 
the DSM has horrible inter-rater reliability, no validity, there's no biomarkers. They're just guesses, voted on guesses about symptom clusters. Um, and it's horrible for relationships, but we fought to be a part of it. So that, that's the brief history. You know, Dr. Hansen, I know Robert's gonna probably gonna ask you about, you know, that piece right there, the ethics and the psychometrics and how we use that. But, uh, you know, I've heard you talk elsewhere about Spitzer and then the other gentleman whose name is escaping me, who was either with the DSM-4 or the DSM-5. Both of them have been Francis. very critical of, of the DSMs since they were published. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, uh, both Spitzer and Francis, who was the architect of the DSM-4, have been critical of the DSM-5. And they were both actively shut out of the process, which is remarkable. These are the leaders in 20th century diagnostics. And when the DSM came, five was being worked on and they had criticisms of it, they were shut out and considered enemies of the process. Um, Francis, has, you know, uh, if you read his book, um, Saving Normal is what it's called. Um, he, it's basically just full of regret about his role in the DSM-4. He said it created false epidemics of autism, bipolar disorder, and ADHD, right? Because of the lessening of his diagnostic criteria. So these are leaders in psychiatry, the leaders, who have been critical of the DSM. So I'm wrestling with something here, Dr. Hanson. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you've said several times that, you know, this is this is potentially damaging or, or clinically damaging to be used in the counseling profession. But yet in, in our ethics class, we learned that kind of the, the, the number one rule is do no harm to the client. So how do we, how do we as professionals or future professionals kind of do this dance of using a, a diagnostic manual that may cause harm, you know, based off of, of what you're saying, but yet if we don't use it, then we may be even at further risk of, of ethical issues. How do we navigate that, that, that path that we've set ourselves on? Yes, that, that's a wonderful question. Um, but first of all, let me just clarify that I'm talking about general trends here. There are many counselors who are very helpful to people who use the DSM. So I'm not saying, just to clarify, something as concrete as that when you use the DSM, treatment goes bad or something like that. Plenty of dedicated, uh, hardworking counselors who do people a great deal of good who use the DSM. I, I think what I'm saying, just to make sure I'm crystal clear, is that in general, it's a harmful force, uh, the DSM. Um, you know, I use it to get paid, but I draw a strong line between using the DSM to get paid and what I do when the door closes with clients, which is to essentially ignore the DSM and to explain to clients that, you know, I, I've, I've had to give you a diagnosis because of insurance requirements. However, I want to let you know that I don't think of you this way. I think of you as a deep, you know, rich person that I want to get to know as an individual. So I just had to do this for insurance person purposes. 
So there's plenty, there are ethical ways, I think, around using the DSM um, and, you know, still providing high quality relational treatment. My concern is that the culture is so thick with the DSM, it's in the air, you breathe it in, that um, sometimes it becomes harder to remember uh, that we help relationally. And I've seen plenty of people forget that to the detriment of their clients. But, you know, there are many good therapists, despite the fact that they use the DSM. So I want to make that clear. But the ethical decision-making, um, th that's a tough one, because I don't think there's an exact right answer here. I know, you know, people who, um, uh, practitioners who don't diagnose at all, who have private practices, but this is a risky position. Because if you get sued and you get taken to court and you say, well, I just didn't diagnose, the other side's going to have no shortage of expert witnesses who say you're being irresponsible, right? So that, that's a risky position. So I don't think it's an easy answer what you do in this situation. Um, now, in terms of, I think there's something that's key to remember in all this, right? Um, counselors shouldn't treat disorders. They should help people. And this is key to remember when thinking about what to do ethically here, okay? Again, counselors shouldn't treat disorders. They should help people. Um, I mean, it, it's different in the medical professions. Med medicine treats disorders, right? You can treat a tumor separate from a person, right? And you should think about it separate, right? You should attack the tumor and, you know, uh, that will help the person automatically. However, in, in, in mental health, so-called disorders aren't separable from treat people, right? I mean, you know, if I'm feeling sad and, you know, that sadness is inextricably tied to me, right? Who I am and what I'm going through in my history. You can't just treat the sadness the way you could treat a tumor, right? The problem with the DSM is that it encourages us to think about treating disorders, not helping people, okay? So now what to do about the DSM and the practicalities of helping people is not an easy problem to solve. If you agree with me that the DSM is harmful, my resolution has been to use it, but to draw a thick line in my mind, in the mind of my clients about using the DSM to get paid and helping them relationally. Okay, but it's a very personal ethical decision about what to do here. I, I, if someone has really thought through these issues and struggled with them uh, and they reach a conclusion, it's hard for me to find fault with the conclusion, right? Because that's the key thing is the critical thinking piece to me, right? Different reasonable people can come up with different con ethical conclusion. But, it, it, you know, I think we have to think critically. The profession is never advanced by blind acceptance, right? 
Remember, Carl Rogers, or, or heroes of the profession, were tremendous critical thinkers, and they came up with their own ideas by rejecting what was in mental health culture at the time, right? So we have to hang on to that. Um, uh, so in, in short, there's a variety of ethical resolutions to this conflict, but I think all of them depend on thinking critically about what to do. Did, did I'm almost forgetting the question. Did that hit some, the mark somewhat? No, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I appreciate it. And, and I, I want to let Jeff finish up here, but just a real quick follow-up. So, you know, if, if our, if our rule or main objective as counselors is, is to help the individual, the relationship piece of it, why, especially here in New York, why is it that we fight and advocate for the right to diagnose then? If that, if maybe that's not the critical piece that we should be focusing in, why is that such a, such an important part of our identity? If you could just maybe just add to that. Well, my opinion, and not everyone agrees with me, is that it's about the money. No DSM, no pay, right? Now, um, we confuse what the profession confuses, I think, after they fight so hard, I think they find, find it hard to face the fact that it was just about the money. We have to make it some noble fight for clients or something, right? To me, it's just about the money. And that may be worth the fight, too. But let's call it what it is. So I, I think that's why. It's about the money, the status, and the prestige. You can't get into the game. You can't get a seat at the table. You can't really get paid, or it's very difficult to, if you don't have diagnostic rights. Right? Think about it. If the DSM in an alternate universe really didn't matter in terms of getting paid, would we fight for our right to use it? Of course not. We'd see it as irrelevant and just let it go. Um, so that's my answer. Again, there, there's plenty of people who don't agree with me, but that's how I reason it out. This is why I love talking to you. You're, you're just so honest about, yeah, you know, I'm going to get shot at for this one, but you, you know, you, you stick to that. And, and it's so refreshing, Dr. Hansen. It really is. Um, well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. And again, I, I, I'm willing to engage people who disagree with me. I have a debate on YouTube about one of my good buddies totally disagrees with me. Uh, but, you know, I think this is what we have to do in the profession, not just teach some party line to students, but say, hey, here's the disagreements. Here's what is not clear to us. After all, our profession is mostly gray. It's not black and white, right? And this is the way I've reasoned it out. And I welcome someone who could convince me otherwise. And my ideal of myself is that if pre presented with logic and evidence, I would totally change my mind. Right. And, and I'm glad you mentioned that debate because I think that was hosted by the Chi Sigma Iota chapter at Oakland University. It right? was. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you know, you and I have talked about this, too, that there's benefit to to raising the awareness and the critical thinking, which you do so well and is so helpful for us students who are really, you know, wet clay as we're going through the program here. And and I particularly love your book because you, you have the space there to really develop the philosophical uh, impetus behind, you know, your position, which I love. So I really recommend it to folks, um, especially with the existential uh, humanist um, 
push there, which I think is so important to our identity as counselors, just the phenomenological uh, relation aspect of the person in front of you. Yeah. Uh, I really enjoy that. So, so, and as a philosophy student, I, I anything where I can just sink my teeth into it, I love it. Um, but I, I guess just the last question in relation to that is, you know, Dr. Hansen, you have this position and and the ideas, and and you've done the work, and and you've you've been working on this. But how do we, as students and even professionals who may be listening, how do we navigate these ideas um, as we seek to develop professionally? and help clients ethically? Well, um, it's not easy, of course. And I think critical thinking is key, right? In every decade of mental health, every decade we look back and think, what were we thinking? How could we have done that? You know, um, with 80s, the 80s, for example, with the recovered memories movement, Hopefully we look back at that and think, what were we thinking, right? With the 90s, with the empirically valid treatment movement, right? I think, what were we thinking, right? I could go through every decade and say, what were we thinking? How could we have believed that? Is 2021 going to be any different when we look back? No, it won't. We'll be thinking things like, how could we have believed that in 2021? How could we have done that when we look back in 2040 or whatever it is, right? So what all we have to try to do is spot that stuff ahead of time, right? We have to think about what might we later regret. Um, and I, I would encourage students to do that. Counseling is a practice. In some ways, it's a trade, but it shouldn't be just a trade where you go learn how to do it and then you go out and do exactly what you learned without deviation. You should think about, is this the right thing to do? Does this make sense? Is it logical? What do opponents say? And that's part of a rich, satisfying, and ethical professional life. So that would be my primary answer. And if someone goes through that process and really thinks hard about something and comes up with some kind of resolution in their professional life and is able to justify it by that process, it's very hard for me to critique them at that point, even if I disagree with the outcome, because they've gone through the process. Um, so I think that's the best answer I can come up with. It's it's not concrete, it's gray like the rest of the profession, but that is how I think about it. Yeah, that's so so good, Dr. Hanson. I appreciate all the the information today. Um, you know, in advance of this interview, I did listen to the podcast that you did on the Thoughtful Counselor, uh, checked out your book. Uh, again, for our listeners, the book is Meaning Systems and Mental Health Culture, Critical Perspectives on Counseling and Psychotherapy. Dr. Hansen, when, where can our listeners find that? Is that just on Amazon or is there a specific location they can find that book if they're interested? Yeah, um, if they're interested, it's, it's definitely on Amazon and um, most places that sell books will have it available. But okay. yes, it's, it's on Amazon. And we'll also include a link in the description as well where, where individuals can find that, as well as encourage our listeners 
to check out the article in the January edition of Counseling Today. I, I know for myself, um, this was all relatively new um, to me, just this side of it. So I found it extremely helpful and I would encourage our listeners to, to check the information out, be open to, to that other side of it. Cause I think it's a, it's a critical piece. It was important. I know for myself to listen to and to dive into this. So uh, I want to personally thank you for, for the time invested to produce those materials, to make it aware to, to the profession and also just the time invested to speak with us today. I, I really appreciate it. And, and, and just want to thank you for on behalf of our, our group. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was very nice to talk to you and be able to elaborate my points. So thanks. You know, Robert, maybe we could buy a bunch of Dr. Hansen's books and then have him sign them and then we can upsell them to our members to raise money for our chapter. Is that is that a good treasurer's strategy there? Uh, yeah, yeah, well, uh, yeah, sure. I, I mean, any way to get money in the coffers, right? Yeah, man, let's do it. <laughs> that strategy depends on people buying them. And yeah. <laughs> oh, man, I love it. And, and just lastly, um, just again, Dr. Hansen, you do have an article coming out, I believe you said this month in Counseling Today, where you discuss um, a lot of these issues. Is that correct? Well, well it's, not, it's not really an article. It's just a, a brief 600-word opinion piece. The current issue of Counseling Today um, contains a bunch of people uh, in the profession, their opinions about the future of counseling and future challenges. And um, I wrote a brief piece for that among probably about 20 others that, that are in there. Um, I look forward to seeing how that measures uh, with the other opinions um, published. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 it's a number of opinions from others uh, in, in the profession. So great. Well, Dr. Hansen, thanks again so much for, for being here. Um, we, we could go another hour with you, and I, I think you'd have no problem with that either. <laughs> That's right. No, um, so, so thanks again so much. And uh, for our listeners, uh, just stay tuned. Uh, we've got, in the next couple of weeks, um, back to our regular episodes with um, Dr. Brad Imhoff is coming on uh, in a few days to speak about just navigating uh, personal mental health issues while functioning as a professional counselor and just what that looks like. So thanks again, everyone for tuning in and we'll see you soon. Bye-bye.